If you'd turn a beautiful passage for communion, 1 John chapter 4, as we finish the chapter, beginning in verse 17. And his perfect love, it is his perfect love that allows us to come boldly before the throne of grace, that allows us to come to the communion table as joint heirs with Christ, as sons, as daughters of the King. The truth that is in view here is the greatest truth that's ever been spoken forth into our world. That before you were ever born, God loved you. Before you ever took your first breath, God has known you. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works that you should walk in them. God so loves you, loves me, loves the whole world that Jesus came to give his life a ransom for many. His love is perfect love. And that perfect love that is found in him is the love that we as the church are supposed to ourselves have and then show the rest of the world that love. While you're here, still in your earthly body, there is no greater purpose you can have than to show the world Christ's love. Would you pray with me? Father, we are just so grateful. Lord, as we come and begin to prepare our hearts by, Lord, letting go of those things that hold us back, those things that are sinful in our lives, Lord, before we ever come to the communion table this day, we're asking you to forgive us and cleanse us and make us, Lord, into that beautiful image of Jesus once again God we we have received your grace and we walk by faith and not by sight and so Lord cleanse your church cause us to receive with gladness your word Lord perfect your love in us as we hear your word Lord strengthen us to be those who love the way you love in Jesus name amen pick up in verse 17 and finish chapter 4. Love has been perfected among us in this. This is how. This is, this is what occurs in your life and in mine, in the life of the church, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. How is he? He is love. We just learned this. This is what's in view in this passage. And if you want to have boldness on the day when you take your last breath, when you step out of time and into eternity, then the surest way to have the maximum amount of boldness is to be as Jesus is in this world. My boldness comes from knowing who I am in Christ Jesus. The gospel that is preached that can reach into the heart of man is the gospel of love that was shown to us by Jesus. 
If you want to have that type of boldness, and it's not a weird, morbid boldness that, you know, I can't wait to die, but the truth is, I can't wait to go home to be with Jesus. I don't fear death. Doesn't mean that I'm out, you know, doing crazy things so that the Lord can take me home sooner rather than later. But I have boldness that the moment that I step out of time and into eternity, I am going to stand before the throne of grace to receive the reward for that which was done in the body. For to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? That kind of boldness comes from God loving us first. That's how I have that boldness. And we're going to see this very deeply in these remaining verses. There is no fear in love. The Christian that walks in fear does not know the depths of the love of God. The Christian that does not have peace, one could say does not know the love of God because the love of God brings the peace of God. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. God didn't save you to torment you with your past or your present or your future. And we'll dig into this in a little bit. God saved you so that you could show others the kind of love that has brought you into a right relationship with him in the first place. It is God's love that allows any of us to be saved. If God did not love us, if he was simply just just, if he was simply just holy, if he was simply just sovereign, he would have never come in the first place. He would have simply placed demands on our lives and said, do it or stay gone. But because he loves us, Because he wants to have a relationship with us that is eternal and everlasting, he's loved us with everything there is to love us with, including his own son, Jesus. God loves you. And that casts out that fear of judgment. And one of the interesting things that happens when you first become a believer is you have that moment of recognition that the grace of God has been applied to your life. And then usually right after that, the enemy comes in and tries to steal that joy by going, you're not worthy. Look at what you're thinking. Look at what you're doing. And when you do not know the depths of God's love, you immediately turn to those things and you start to agree with the devil. That's right. Perfect love, recognizing that God loved you before you were saved, cast out that fear of future judgment because you could have never earned your salvation. It was never possible in the first place. Keeping the law couldn't save you. You doing all the great, wonderful works that anyone could ever do in this life has zero capacity to save an unredeemed heart. It is for by grace you've been saved through faith, 
And that faith was given to you as a gift of God. And because of that gift, you now can experience the love of God. Notice the remainder of this passage. Fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. Amen? He loved you before you loved him. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Love is so important to us as the body of Christ that it is equated here to your salvation experience. If you don't love, one has to question whether one has actually been intercepted by the love of God in the first place. You were on a collision course with hell. And Christ comes and says, over my dead body. Amen? He died in your place. He says, I'm not letting you go there. You're going to have to trample over the cross to get to hell. How much love is that, family? How much love has God shed abroad in our hearts that he would send Jesus to say, I'm not going to let him go, Father. I refuse to allow them to perish. I will give everything so they have the opportunity to be saved. All they need do is believe in me. That kind of love. Mind-boggling love. And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must also love his brother. Can I just be honest with you? Sometimes, and I don't mean that I'm ever dishonest, but to emphasize the point might be a better way to say that. <laughs> to emphasize the point I'm making here, when, when you say your wedding vows, I hope that none of you do this. I promise to love as long as you don't gain eight pounds. I promise to love as long as we always have enough money. I promise to love as long as the house is this big. I promise to love as long as my car is never more than five years old. I promise to love. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not real love, is it? That would be highly conditioned love, wouldn't it? Those vows would be meaningless in the face of those statements. You you see, you can't put conditions on the type of love that's being talked about here. It has to be absolutely volitional, voluntary, and it has to be absolutely unconditional, as in there are no conditions except that you receive it. And once you receive it, you are then obligated to also give it. You can't take it and then keep it for yourself. That's what's in view here, that kind of love. When you say your wedding vows, you intend to keep them, amen? But does stuff happen in marriage? Does life work out the way you think it will? No. If you've been married for more than a week, you know things happen, amen? You're like, 
I didn't plan on that. I don't know that I agreed to that. You know what you agreed to was to love, honor, and cherish until death do us part. God said the same thing to you when Jesus went to the cross. I promise to love you eternally if you will believe in me, receive volitionally this love, and this love is not conditioned on your performance. It is not by works of the flesh that anyone is justified. You've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and that is a gift to you. Amen? That's why as Paul illuminates that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, though he's speaking about spiritual giftedness, he, he, he's saying, look, if I had the gift of prophecy, if I understood all mysteries, if I could command the mountains to move, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. The truth is, perfect love trumps absolutely everything. That's how you got saved in the first place. It's the foundation stone of everything. And so what becomes the picture here is this full-grown love. And again, you can equate it to relationships humanly, though it is an imperfect example. When you first think you're in love with somebody that you want to marry... You actually don't have perfect motivation yet, do you? That's why you guys all of a sudden start going to the gym. You actually clean your car for the first time in nine years. You all of a sudden pay for meals, which you normally would beg from your friends. No, you're you're trying to put on a show. Oh, God put on a show for you. It was called the cross of Calvary. But it wasn't a show, it was the truth. This is who I am, I love you. You understand it? That was God saying, this is how much I love you. And I want you to love other people the same way. You see, it is true that our love for him is supposed to mirror his love for us. That's one of the reasons that the world has a problem sometimes with the church. He did love us enough to send Jesus to this earth. Amen? And he loves, if you read John 17, he loves us the way he loves Jesus. This is mind-boggling to me. That a perfect God in heaven, knowing exactly who I am, loves me the way he loves Jesus, his own son. That is crazy to me because I know me, you know you, amen? You see, you can fool other people with outward appearances and hypocrisy, but you cannot fool God and God still loves you even knowing that sometimes your motivations are not good. Sometimes you outright do the wrong thing and you know it's the wrong thing. But he loves you anyway. That love is what we're supposed to show the world. Not a conditional love. If you fall into this category, 
If you somehow think exactly like I do, well, then you can really know the love of God. No, it's Christ's love that we show the world. It's Christ's love that we're trying to make sure that people understand. It is not some dumbed-down version of how I want it to be. It is what he actually is. That's how I know that love in me is growing. That's why it says we love him because he first loved us. We wouldn't even know how to do this unless Jesus showed us at the cross what that love looks like. That's how he showed us his love. It's one thing to give us good things. You see, God could have made this earth just so wonderful that we all would have wandered around going, wow, you know, isn't another beautiful sunset? And pretty soon we would have figured out how to mess up the blessings of God. So what does he do? He sends his son to a bloody cross. Beaten, bruised, the chastisement for our peace was placed upon him. His stripes healed me. Do you understand that kind of love? That's mind-boggling love. That's the kind of love I don't even have words to actually accurately explain to you. It's so mind-boggling to me that when I think about it, it's like, Lord, how could you even do that? How can we know? Well, there's some steps here, some steps to growth or steps to growing in love. It says here in verses 17 to 19, this is how it's perfected. This is the maturing love. This is what it looks like. You see, here's the deal for most of us. When you think about these things, when I know his love, I know that he loves me even when I fail. Even when I'm wrong. Even when I mess up. Now let me be clear. He doesn't want you to fail. And he doesn't want you to mess up. He does not want you to be disobedient. But he loves you still. You may suffer the consequences of your disobedience. You may see a lack of blessing in your life because of it. But God still loves you. In an infinitely greater, than, greater way than we as human parents love our children. He doesn't want you to be afraid. It is a reverential fear that we have for God. It is not a phobia. That word, phobeo, the Greek word, from which we get phobia which we stick all kinds of things in front of it. If you're a fear of going outside, you have agoraphobia. If you have a fear of heights, that's acrophobia. If you have a fear of water, that's hydrophobia. If you are afraid of spiders and everyone should be, that's arachnophobia, right? It's like, spiders are the ones, I'm going to ask God why he created spiders when we get there. I would rather hold a cobra in my hand than have a little tiny black widow on there. It's like it freaks me out. It's like, ugh. But what God doesn't want is us to be afraid of him. It's one thing to have fear that helps keep you alive. I have trafficophobia. 
It's like, I'm afraid of you all on the freeway. (laughs) There's things that are healthy about us actually fearing things in life. They help keep you alive. But you should not fear God if you know him. Because he will never leave you, he'll never forsake you. And you will never face judgment for your sins because they've been forgiven by the blood of the cross. Amen? Amen. That is actually called chrysophobia, the fear of judgment. You do not have to have chrysophobia. I don't want it. It's not for me. And here's why. I think that so many people struggle with the fear of judgment. There are three things here. Something in your past haunts you. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Your past is your past. It's not going to be dredged up. You're not going to get to heaven. (laughs) Jeff, you almost made it. You were so close. You were like this close. But, you know, this stuff back here. Woo! I don't know how you ever thought that was going to be forgiven. Can I tell you people talk to me like this all the time? You don't know what I've done. And I will usually say something to the effect, you're right, I don't. But God does and he loves you anyway. And if you will ask, he will forgive. Mind-boggling. Maybe something in your present. You're just afraid of a decision you've got to make or something that's going on in your life right now and you know you're not thinking about it just perfectly. Jesus died for your present as well. But the one thing that often people struggle with is something in your future. And that future is knowing who you are today makes you think that if you have to earn your own way to heaven, that your future is really bleak. Can I tell you that's actually true? Save one thing, the grace of God. Amen? Without the grace of God, your future is bleak. Without the mercy of God, you're not going to get to heaven. Without his forgiveness, you can't get there. But here's the good news. Because of who you are in Christ, the grace of God's been applied to your life, and your future is secure, so you need not fear the future. Amen? For some people, it's a combination of all three of these things. Look, the book of Romans just lays these things out in absolute perfection for us. Read Romans chapter 8 when you get home. There is therefore no condemnation. What can separate you from the love of God? Paul answers that question. Nothing. Amen? Nothing. If you're a child of God by grace and through faith nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's why it's important for us to live like believers. Because otherwise, the enemy gets into your head, well, see what you did? No child of God would ever do that. And while it's true, no child of God should do that, 
The truth of the matter is, the child of God sometimes does do the very things that we're not supposed to do, which is why Paul wrote Romans chapter 7. So you can rest that your future is absolutely secure because Christ has paid for your past. He's paying today for your present. It's done, and your future is secure in him. Amen? You don't have to fear death. Again, read Romans 8. No created thing can keep you from the love of God. Nothing. There isn't anything. Don't let the enemy tell you otherwise. And what that produces in you is complete honesty with God. The last four verses here are so important to us. I'm going to ask the communion team at this time to begin handing out the elements of communion. While I finish this one point, you can have complete honesty with God. God already knows who you are. God knows your problems. God knows your struggles. God knows your sin. God knows what's going on when you think nobody else knows what's going on, he does know. And while he does not approve of the sin, he does wash the sinner. He does rinse us clean by the blood of Christ. If that weren't true, no one would see God. You can't get there. I can't get there on my own merit. And when I have a confident heart, I don't have to be fake with God. And you all have met people who speak in religious platitude, but you know that their life is a train wreck. You've met them. Maybe you're here today and that's actually describing you. Maybe you think God doesn't see. But the truth is, when Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he said, you're hypocrites. What he was really saying is, you guys are actors. Do you really think I don't know you? You know, one of the things that's always been amazing to me in the movie industry, and now that we can do it digitally, it's even more so, is, is the creation of a fake environment that we would call a movie set. Those buildings look great when you drive down Main Street, but you step through a door and there's no back to the building, amen? There's nothing back there. It's literally a false front. It's made to look good on one side, and the backside could be anything. It could be a dirt lot. God knows your dirt lots. And he loves you anyway. God knows when you're acting, and he loves you anyway. And so the true growth of a believer is best exemplified when you can actually be honest with God. And I'm going to challenge you right now. Is there some area in your life 
where you are actually trying to barter with God? Because not only have I done that myself, I have listened to story after story after story of somebody telling me why they think God's word does not say what it means and mean what it says. And so here's what happens. They begin to justify. They begin to qualify. They begin to excuse. And they hang on to that thing because they're not being honest with God. And while I'm not suggesting for a moment that that causes you to forfeit your salvation, it absolutely will steal the blessings of the Lord. It absolutely will put you in a place where you have no assurance, even if you are a child of God. Now, I'm not telling you you're not saved. I'm telling you the opposite. I think that a person makes a profession of faith and walks in the Spirit, they're saved. But I am telling you, I've watched person after person after person who walks with the Lord try and convince God that their sin's okay. You need to be honest with God. You need to be honest with God. Look the Lord in the eye in that sense and say, God, I'm sorry. The classic case of this in all of the Bible is found in Acts chapter 5, and you can read it later. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And people often misinterpret this story uh, of, of thinking that God kills this couple because they stole from the Lord. And that's not what it says. They misrepresented themselves before the people and in essence made themselves to look more holy than they actually were. They tried to fool God. And I'm not suggesting to anyone in here that you're in danger of becoming Ananias and Sapphira. But I am saying to you, that's how deceptive sin can be. You can get so caught up in it that ultimately what happens is this. You start to act like your sin is not sin. Now's the time for you to get that thing squared away with the Lord. Right now. Immediately. Don't let another day go by where the enemy has the ability to manipulate you because you refuse to be honest with God. Before we come to the Lord's table, before we cry out in our spirits, Lord, you died for me, let's all be honest with him. And if there's something in your life right now I'm asking you, as a fellow sinner, not as your pastor, as a fellow sinner, to get that squared away with God and tell him truthfully who you are and say, God, I don't want to be like this anymore.
You died for this sin. It's taken a hold of my life, and I want to be free from it. Be honest with them. It's time to stop pretending. The love of God is able to produce absolute forgiveness so that you can experience that forgiveness. Probably most of you have had a time in your life where you went through an event and you were wrong and you needed forgiveness and someone gave you that forgiveness and you just felt that cool wave rush over you. It's over. But before it was over, you hung on to that stuff and that stuff was a weight. It was a burden. It was crushing you. And you carried around wondering when someone was going to rat you out. Jesus will never rat you out. But he does want you to be honest. He didn't die for you so you could be dishonest with him. He died for you so that you could be honest before a holy God and say, Lord, I'm a wreck. I'm a mess in my mind. I've been doing this thing and I shouldn't be doing it. And I'm telling you, please change me. If you want deeper victory in your life, then the love of God has to reach those areas that you've been acting in. Then you will have a love to give. Then you will have that love supreme in your life that's worthy of sharing with others then you can be confident. When you are honest with God, you know what you're going to get from him, amen? He's not going to cast you out. He's not even ashamed in that sense of you. He wants everything fixed. So I'm going to ask you right now, we're going to bow our heads, and each one of us can take a minute And if there's something on your heart, you don't need to go into all the details, bits, pieces, and parts right here today, but you can simply name that area of your life. Name it by name. Say, Lord, I've been struggling with this thing, this habit, this idea, this thought, this bitterness, this unforgiveness, this thing in my life. And I've not been honest with you. Let's pray right now. And let's start fresh before we go to the communion table. Let's bow and pray.
And it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He traveled his usual route with the disciples, headed across the old city of Jerusalem to a little house to a place called the Upper Room, and it was there that there was a dinner that had been prepared, a seder prepared for them. And Jesus took the bread, and rising up from the middle of the triclinium, this three-sided table, with Judah sitting next to him. If ever there was a hypocrite in view, it was Judas. And Jesus took the bread and when he had broken it he looked at the disciples and he said guys I want to explain something to you what we're doing here is not just having a meal I'm showing you who I am I'm showing you right now my love and he took the bread and he broke it And he said, take and eat, for this is my body broken for you. Let's partake together. And the Bible very clearly says it was after supper. So keeping the Jewish tradition of the cups... There were four. The third cup, the cup of the cup of redemption, would have been directly after supper. Because Jesus said, I won't drink of this cup again until I do so when I come back. There's one more cup. But Jesus took that third cup, and when he himself had drunk from it. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for the remission of sin. And as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, do so in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Father in heaven, how we love you. We love that you first loved us. And Lord Jesus, when you cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why? Father, why have you forsaken me? The answer was us, your kids, your church, your children. Why? Because I was a sinner and you needed a Savior. And Jesus, you died for me. Lord, you died for me, for us. Your body was broken. Your blood was shed. Lord, you brought us into a right relationship with your Father. You placed your righteousness in our account justified by the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, Lord, 
for your sacrifice for us that we need not fear. Perfect love has cast out that fear of judgment. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for loving us. May we love you back in Jesus' name. Amen.